Thank you, Rabbi Kesselman. Good morning and a good voch, Shavua Tov to everybody. Um, as was mentioned, <clears throat> we're going to take a look at uh, a part of Siman Sadiq base which could probably be best classified as uh, one of the key sugyas to learning smicha. Um, I also have mentioned in the topic that we will look at the missing links as well. There, so there's uh, quite a bit to, to get into this morning. Um, if you've, you've already uh, covered this section, then it may be a little bit of chazora. Um, but if, if you haven't yet seen this section, then I hope that the discussion is not going to be uh, too technical with too many moving parts, but at least we will we'll be able to introduce some of the uh, some of the top the you know, top issues within Hilchas Bosa Bacholov. Rabbi Cheskel Abramsky, Dion Abramsky, was the head of English Jewry during and post World War II. And he was also a figure amongst Torah jury. His work, Chazoin uh, Yecheskel, on the Toseftas, on the Brises, and his uh, very quick wit and witticisms are well known amongst the, uh, the yeshiva world. And it is told that when he came to Vilna to do his smicha with Rav Chaim Grodzinski, who was the Rav of Vilna and the Rav of pre-war Lithuanian Jewry, Rav Chaim Oizer asked him only one question, and that was, can you go through the sugya of Tipas Cholov with me? And from that small question came a sitting that took hours, which earned Rabbi Abramsky his smicha, and hopefully within the following hour, we will be able to uh, perhaps go through some of those steps and perhaps mimic, hopefully, what went on in that office in Vilna, in Rav Chaim Oiz's chambers, with the elucidating as much as possible on this key sugya of Tipas Cholov. We begin with the Mishnah in Chulin on Dav Kufches. The Mishnah says simply that if a drop of milk falls onto a piece of meat that is cooking with other pieces of meat and food in a pot, then if that piece of meat tastes milky, then that particular piece of meat is forbidden. But if it does not taste milky, which means that there are 60 parts meat, 60 times meat against the milk to prevent the milk from imparting any flavor, then the piece of meat is permitted. The Mishnah also goes on to say that if one, as the milk falls into that pot, if one were able to notice and immediately cover the pot, put the lid on, or stir the pot immediately in such a way that the milk droplet was never able to penetrate one piece, then that milk is spread and distributed evenly around the entire contents of that pot. And then one piece of meat is not affected more than the others. And if in total, there are 60 parts against this milk droplet, the food, all the food in the pot may be consumed. So that is the Mishnah. And the Mishnah doesn't give any indication as to the position of this piece of meat, the any other particulars other than a drop of milk falls onto one piece of meat. And now that piece of meat is forbidden or not forbidden. So our objective when going through this sugya further, is to clarify how this piece of meat 
affects all the other foods in the pot, under what conditions this piece of meat will affect all the others. And if everybody agrees to the process, and so we first uh, go into the Rishonim, who discuss the position of this piece of meat and why it is that if this piece of meat did not have 60 against the milk droplet, that the piece of meat does not become Hanan, Chasichanasis, Nevela. And once the piece of meat becomes an Isur entity itself, why the Mishnah does not discuss how this piece is affecting all the other foods now in the pot, requiring 60 against the entire piece of meat. So we'll begin first with the opinion of the Ri, who's quoted in the Toysvus. Usually we learn Rashi first and then we learn Toysvus, but today we will learn the Ri first. And the way that the Toysvus understood this Mishnah was that a piece of meat is not submerged in any of the liquid and it is not floating in the liquid, but rather one piece of meat is perched above all the other pieces of meat that are suspended in the liquid. And because this one piece of meat upon which the milk droplet lands is completely chutzlerotev, it is completely outside of the uh, the liquid and it is not touching the liquid, it's as if this piece of meat is in its own space, in its own part. And what the Mishnah means is that if the bulk falls onto this one piece, and because this piece is perched outside of the mixture, it does not affect all the other pieces of meat and the other food inside the pot, then the halacha is that this piece of meat needs to be appraised to see whether the piece itself may be consumed or not. And so that would depend on whether the piece tastes milky or not. However, were it so that the piece upon which the milk landed was partially submerged within the liquid and the one piece of meat was now boiling and bubbling within a liquid which could transfer flavors, then the dynamic would be very different. What would happen, according to the Re, is that the milk droplet would boil all the way through the one piece of meat and when it comes into contact with the water level, then the water would be able to uh, direct that milk droplet out of the piece that it fell and spread that milk droplet around evenly. In which case, there would be need, the, the pot would need 60 in total against the one milk droplet. In this instance, according to the Re, because the milk droplet had filtered all the way through the one piece of meat and has now dispersed evenly amongst all the other contents of the pot, the one piece of meat upon which the milk landed is not affected in any way more or disproportionately more than the other foods within the pot. And therefore, this piece of meat would also be permitted to eat should there be 60 in total, all of all the contents of this pot against the milk droplet. So already from the start, the Re has expanded the Mishnah now to be dealing with a specific case of where a piece of meat was not inside the mixture at all. It was rather perched out and beyond where it won't have an effect on the other contents of the pot. But were the piece of meat to be partially submerged within the liquid, then the milk would drain through that piece of meat and it would spread into all the other pieces within the pot. And once bottle, the shishin, will allow consuming all the pieces of food inside this mixture. So that is the opinion of the re. The second opinion that concerns us is that of Rashi. 
Rashi maintains that the Mishnah here was not interested in the position, the location of the one piece of meat where the, the, the milk fell on, because it would be irrelevant whether the piece of meat was partially submerged in the liquid together with the other pieces, or whether that piece of meat was chutzlerreuter, completely outside of the mixture, because the results would be the same. According to Rashi, when the milk falls onto this one piece of meat and it falls onto the bare surface of the top of the piece of meat that's not inside a liquid, then that milk droplet will only filter to a certain point within the piece of meat, but it is not going to filter out into the liquid and into the contents of the rest of the pot. And so at this point, we can say, although it is slightly vague, that Rashi understood the Mishnah to be dealing with a piece of meat that was either outside the liquid or partially submerged within the liquid, and that the milk droplet in either, in either case does not cook out into the rest of the pot. But as to the piece of meat itself, what happens to the piece of meat? The Mishnah only tells us that if the piece tastes milky, then the, the meat needs to be discarded. But if the meat does not taste any, in any way milky, then the piece of meat itself can be consumed. We'll come back to Rashi in a moment. At this point, we are going to be going with either of these two streams, either the re who sees the case as a piece of meat that's outside of the mixture. Whereas if the meat was partially submerged in the gravy, in the liquid in any way, then the milk would cook out and disperse into all the other foods. Or the second stream, which is Rashi, who maintains that a piece of meat that is totally submerged in a liquid, covered in a liquid, when milk falls onto that piece, then the liquid will take the milk immediately and spread it around evenly. But if a piece of meat is not submerged in any liquid, even partially, then the milk is not going to drain through the piece of meat, but it will stay within the piece and affect the piece, uh, only the piece of meat. With this in mind, we'll take a giant leap into the Shulchan Aruch, into the Machaber, the Ramah, and then we will come back and we will uh, analyze and explain all of these different components uh, one at a time. We move into the Shulchan Aruch and the Mechaber here writes that if a droplet of milk falls onto a piece of meat, then if that piece of meat tastes milky, the latter now becomes a forbidden entity. It becomes a forbidden piece of meat. And now the rest of the pot needs to have 60 against that entire piece of meat. Up to this point, when we've been discussing the Mishnah, Rashi, the Ri, uh, we haven't seen anything like this yet. That the piece that becomes Hanan, the piece that becomes itself forbidden once the milk lands on it, that this piece should affect all the other pieces in the pot in its entirety. That is something new. Another thing that we see is that there are more mentions that if the milk falls onto one piece of meat, then the first thing, the de facto position, is that the entire pot needs to have 60 against the milk droplet itself, which means that the milk droplet is cooked through, it has spread, and it is now uh, distributed evenly around the pot, which means that the Ramah must be holding like the re. However, the Ramon then goes on in the same breath to say that the piece of meat itself can never be consumed. 
because that piece of meat is forbidden. But if the Ramah held like the Ri, then the milk droplet could only have filtered out, and boiled, and uh, become bottled bashishin, which would leave that piece upon which the milk landed as also being permitted again. So why would the Ramah, if you held like the Ri, maintain that the piece itself is forbidden to eat? So that is also something that we need to, we need to clarify. A third thing, a third difficulty that presents itself is that there are more, again, in Sif Dalad. So here we were in Sadiq Base, Sif Base. In Sif Dalad, there are more raises this issue again of where a drop of milk fell onto a piece of meat. And that piece of meat. seemingly was partially submerged. But there the Ramah paints a different picture. He says that the piece of meat itself becomes a novella, it becomes Hanan. And the rest of the mixture now requires 60 against that entire piece, which is a very different picture to what the Ramah was painting in Siv Base where the Ramah clearly said that the piece of meat itself needs to be removed and can't be eaten, but the rest of the pot only needs to have 60 against the milk droplet that boiled out of the piece, not against that entire piece. And so there seems to be a contradiction within the Ramah himself. So after taking a look at the Shulchan Aruch, the Ramah, and the difficulties between them, we need to take a step back and go back to Rashi. So before we approach the Shulchan Aruch and the Ramah, we need to first direct our attention to Rashi. There is a dispute as to how to understand Rashi. We have the Darke Moshe, which is the Ramah himself, his commentary on the tour. In the Darke Moshe and in the Shach, they understand Rashi one way, but the Taz sees Rashi another way altogether. Let's first take a look at the Taz. it seems to be the most straightforward un, uh, way of understanding Rashi's opinion here. To review the case, according to Rashi, if you have a piece of meat that's partially submerged in a liquid and a milk droplet falls onto that piece, Rashi holds that the milk droplet does not cook out of that one piece and it does not filter through and uh, spread into all the other pieces of food inside the pot. But what of that piece itself? What happens to the milk droplet inside the piece itself? So the Taz maintains that something even more severe is happening when the piece of meat is partially submerged. The milk droplet cooks through all the, the entire piece of meat upon which it lands and now renders that piece of meat chanan. If the piece does not have 60 against the milk droplet, then the piece of meat now becomes itself an isur. And so we have an even greater problem now in that we do not need to concern ourselves with milk that's cooking out of this piece and spreading amongst the others. We have a piece of novella that is purging its own forbidden flavor out into the mixture. And it is that flavor of Isur that is spreading and is now infiltrating all the other pieces of food inside the mixture. And so, according to Rashi, yes, one does not need 60 against the piece of the, the milk cooking out. One needs 60 against the entire piece of meat that has become a novella. 
And so that is the understanding of the Taz and his interpretation of Rashi, that it would be a straightforward case of where a piece of meat becomes Hanan, Chasichanasis Nevela, and how the forbidden flavor would be cooking out of that piece of meat in and amongst all the other the foods in the pot. And it would seem that that's the logical way of understanding Rashi. So at this point in the conversation, if we could just halt before we come to the other interpretations of Rashi and just lay out the way that the Taz sees the two streams, Ri and Rashi. The Taz would view it as follows. According to the Ri, a piece of meat that is partially submerged in a liquid is in a position where the liquid will conduct the milk out of that one piece of meat and spread the milk evenly into all the other pieces of food in the pot. Whereas Rashi maintains that no such a chemical reaction is going to occur. What will happen instead is that the, the milk droplet will filter through into that one piece of meat. That one piece of meat will now become chanan, will become a novella, and that piece of meat's own isur flavor will spread into all the other pieces. And so there will be a need for 60 against the entire piece of meat, not just the milk droplet that's cooking out of it, according to Rashi. All right, so that is the way that the Taz would view these two streams of Rashi and the Ri, the Ri being the lenient opinion and Rashi being the stringent opinion. Let's move away from the Taz and take a look at the way that the Darke Moshe and the way that the Shach would understand Rashi. A piece of meat that's partially submerged is not going to impart the milk droplet that fell onto this one piece of meat. But at the same time, according to the Darke Moshe and the Shach, the piece of meat has no effect on the other pieces of food inside the mixture. Now, this needs clarification. Because if the milk droplet lands onto the top half of the piece of meat that's outside the liquid, why does that piece not become chanan? Why does that piece not become an availer and impart its now iso flavor to everything else? And to this, we can answer for the Ramah, the Darke Moshe, for the Shach, that they're basing themselves of the opinion of the Mordechai. The Mordechai in Chulin presents a rather novel understanding of Rashi. He explains that when the milk droplet falls onto the top of a piece of meat, that milk droplet doesn't spread in a, uh, in a vertical direction, it doesn't all spread together as one uh, entity of milk, but rather that milk will spread laterally and it will spread horizontally, just taking up the top layer or the upper crust of that piece of meat and no further. And so the way that the Mordechai sees it, is that the milk droplet is not creating any chanan because the milk droplet does not cook all the way through. It merely stays isolated in the top layer of that piece of meat. And in the, uh, the, the topic that was presented, I said I would be taking a look at Tipas Cholov and the missing links so here's one of those missing links. We will link this to another discussion that will occur in, it occurs already in Tzadik Aleph and then again at the end of Tzadik Dalet, which is that Ein Oimrim that a piece of meat that becomes an Avela Hanan will only happen if the milk 
permeates through that piece of meat. But when you have one piece of meat, which is half meat, half chanan, half novella, then there is a discussion whether that piece of meat does become, in fact, chanan in the first place. Because chanan cannot be a, a, a piece of food which is half forbidden and half permissible. If I may borrow the term, it, one can't be half pregnant. It's either all osur or it's all, it's all mutter. And over here as well, when the bulk droplet lands on the top surface of the piece of meat and it spreads laterally, then the majority of that piece of meat is pure meat. It is not chanan. And therefore, Rashi maintains that if one couldn't locate this piece of meat upon which the milk droplet landed, and one was able to remove the piece from the pot, then not only does the milk not boil all the way through and out of the piece of meat, but even the piece of meat itself remained pure meat throughout the process without affecting any of the other contents of the pot. And so, according to the Darke Moshe and the Shach, they would see the two streams of Ri and Rashi as follows. According to the Ri, when a piece of meat is partially submerged, when a milk droplet falls on to one piece, that milk droplet will cook out and will spread and will become bottle bashishing. According to Rashi, when that milk droplet lands on a piece of meat, it doesn't go beyond the top of the piece. And therefore, if one can locate that piece of meat and remove it, then the rest of the pot is left unaffected. You don't even need shishim against the, the milk droplet. So according to the Darke Moshe and the Ramah, the, the Ramah and the Shach, it is the exact opposite. They would see the re as being the more strict opinion in that the milk droplet comes out and needs bittle, and Rashi being the more lenient opinion that the milk droplet doesn't get further than the top of the piece of meat and that the uh, meat doesn't affect the rest of the contents of the pot. So there is no need for any bittle in what remains. However, there is a flip side though, in that according to Rashi, because there's milk inside this one piece of meat, and we know that the milk has spread within the piece, not extensively, but to some degree, and we don't know where that milk is, and we cannot tell with certainty how deep that droplet of milk has embedded itself in the one piece of meat. So as a precaution, one should not eat that, that entire piece of meat. Whereas according to the re, the leniency is that once the milk droplet has filtered out and has bottled bashishim, then all the pieces inside the pot are permitted to eat. So what we have achieved so far is we've expanded our understanding here in insofar as where the piece of meat is when the moat landed on it. According to the re, if the piece of meat was partially submerged, then the milk droplet would filter out and would spread. According to Rashi, even if the piece was partially submerged, the milk droplet would not spread out and affect all the other pieces of food. However, how that, that milk droplet affects the one piece of meat itself is subject to a machloikas. According to the Mordechai, the Darkemoshe, the Shach, that piece of meat with its milk sitting somewhere inside it, is not affected to the, to the extent that the meat becomes chanan. Whereas according to the Taz, the piece of meat does in fact become chanan, it becomes an availer, and now its own forbidden flavor would spread amongst all the other pieces of food. And so we've established that the position of the piece of meat and the way that the milk affects that piece of meat and how in turn that piece of meat will affect the other components of the mixture has, uh, is, has been dealt with by the Akhronian, by the, the, the Ramah, the Shach, and by the Taz, and how they would interpret these Rishonian. 
Now, it's all very well. We've seen how to explain Rashi. But we now need to come back and deal with the opinion of the Mahabar and the Ramah, which we left off with a little bit earlier, saying that the, the Mahabar does not spell out here that the milk droplet filters through into the mixture. The Mahabar maintains that the piece of meat becomes forbidden because of its contact with the milk, and now you need 60 against that piece of meat. What was the Mahabar basing himself on? We need to see in a moment. We also need to account for the Ramah, who said that the milk droplet cooks out of the one piece of meat, but then at the same time, the piece of meat is forbidden, which doesn't seem to be like Rashi ordinary. And then the third problem was the seemingly, uh, seeming contradiction within the Ramah, where the Ramah holds again in Siv Dalad that when the milk droplet lands on one piece of meat, the latter becomes, Hanan becomes an availer, and uh, you need 60 against the entire piece of meat. So with the above uh, understanding of the Shach and the Taz in their interpretations of Rashi are going to contribute to their interpretations of the Mahabar and the Ramah as well. First, let's take a look at the Shach. To review, the Shach saw the two streams of the Ri and the Rashi as that Ri will be lenient in one way and stringent in another, and Rashi will be lenient in one way and stringent in another. That is to say that according to the Ri, when a piece of meat is partially submerged, and the milk falls onto that piece, then the milk will cook out and the reastringent now, you need 60 against the milk droplet, but then the piece of meat becomes permitted like all the other pieces of meat once there is 60 against that droplet. And then Rashi is lenient in that Rashi doesn't see the milk as filtering any deeper than the surface of the, of the piece of meat, which would leave the milk uh, definitely in a position where it's not going to filter through and the piece of meat itself is not going to have an effect on all the other foods inside the mixture. Yet that piece of meat has got some milk in it and this is where Rashi is stringent, cannot be eaten. The way that the Shach puts this, the pieces of the puzzle together are as follows. The Mahaber is dealing with a case of where the piece of meat was outside the mixture. And as we said before, according to everybody, whether it's the Ri, whether it's Rashi, if a piece of meat is perched outside and it's not uh, in any liquid, then the piece of meat is isolated. And when that milk droplet cooks through, it becomes an availer, it becomes Hanan. And what the Mahabha meant was that if instead of removing that piece, this Hanan piece was stirred in amongst all the others, then you would require 60 against the entire piece of meat. But if that piece of meat was partially submerged, then the Shach opines that the Mahabha would agree with the Ri and be more lenient here in that the milk droplet would cook out and once the milk droplet spreads and is bottled with shishim amongst all the other components of the mixture, then even the piece of meat itself becomes permitted to eat again. So that is the interpretation of the shach. Then regarding the second question of who does the Ramah hold like, the shach interprets it as follows. When a piece of meat is partially submerged in the liquid, then the Ramah fundamentally holds like the Ri that the liquid, the milk will filter through the one piece and will spread. And so we need to be concerned for the milk and that the entire mixture needs to have 60 against the milk droplet. But on the other hand, the Ramah 
also holds like Rashi. He also takes Rashi into consideration that in the event that the milk droplet does not spread through a piece of meat, but rather stays isolated within the piece itself, that the piece of meat should always be su suspected of having milk embedded in it, and therefore the, the piece of meat should never be eaten. And that is why Rashi maintains, the Ramah, excuse me, maintains that the piece of meat as a khumra, as an, a, uh, a, a measure of stringency, should not be consumed. But we do need to suspect, like the re, that the milk droplet had filtered through and had spread around evenly. So this is the interpretation of the shach that the Ramah holds of both the stringencies of Rashi and of the re, the stringency of the re that the milk droplet fell, uh, milk droplet filtered through and was boiled into all the pot, and the stringency of Rashi that the piece of meat remains uh, milky in some way and that the piece cannot be eaten. With this in mind, the shach then goes on to answer the third question of why does the Ramah hold that a piece upon which the milk fell needs to be removed but does not become Hanan in Siv base and then in Siv Dalad, the Ramah maintains that the piece does become Hanan, the entire piece of meat does become forbidden, and now you need 60 against the whole piece of meat, not just the milk droplet. And to this, the Shach explains based on his interpretation, and this is the Shach later on in Siv Dalad, that what the Ramah was dealing with in Siv base was a situation of where after the milk had fallen onto one piece of meat, that that piece was removed. Once the piece is outside of the mixture, then all that we're concerned about is the possibility of the milk that could have cooked through, which is the re. But the piece itself did not yet become chanan, it did not yet become forbidden, because the milk had not had a chance to cook all the way through into the center of the piece, it remains somewhere uh, within the upper area of the, of, the, of the piece of meat itself. So when the piece of meat is located and removed, then one may not eat that piece of meat as a measure of stringency. And the concern about how that piece affected the rest of the mixture is only insofar as the milk that could have cooked out and has spread amongst all the other pieces. However, in Sif Dalad, the Ramah is dealing with another case here, which is that after the milk fell onto one piece of meat, instead of removing it, that piece was accidentally stirred into the other pieces. And once that piece has disappeared under the water and the liquid has now had a chance to get to the milk within that one piece of meat, and now that milk is able to distribute itself within the one piece of meat, then the entire piece, while under the liquid, becomes chanan. And this is based, here's another missing link, this is based on a principle of Isud Dovuk. Isud Dovuk is a situation where two foods, one being forbidden, one being permitted, are biologically joined. Like, for example, chaylev that could be biologically joined to the muscle, to the meat. That when you have foods that are so tightly interwoven with one another, their flavors impart into one another directly, and the intensity of the flavor of the isa gets into the heter a lot more. And this process is referred to as mamahe livloya. And what is happening once the piece of meat with its milk has now been directed into the liquid and the liquid is able to uh, bring that milk into and cause that milk to now disperse into the piece of meat before dispersing outwards into all the other pieces of food, 
that one piece of meat is affected disproportionately by the milk more so than the other pieces of food inside the mixture. And so once that piece of meat is, is underwater, the milk spreads through the entire piece, leaving that one piece, Hanan, actual novella, which would then result in all the other pieces of food requiring 60 against the entire piece of meat, not just the milk droplet anymore. So again, the case that the Ramah is dealing with in Siv Dalad was where the piece of meat with its milk that landed on it wasn't removed from the mixture, but stirred into. And once the milk, the meat is stirred into the mixture, there is another dynamic here, which is isodovuk, the fact that the milk is now drawn into the one piece of meat, leaving that piece forbidden, and now its forbidden flavor is spreading amongst all the others. That's why the Ramah holds that the one piece becomes Hanan and its flavors that spread, its forbidden flavors that spread, now need bickle, not just milk flavor coming out of it. Right, so again, this was all the opinion of the Shach. The way that he interprets the Mechaber is like the Ri, that if the piece is partially submerged, the milk will cook out. He interprets the Ramah to hold both like Rashi and the Ri, that if the piece of meat is partially submerged, then the, lick, the milk will cook out and the pot needs 60 against the milk droplet. But as to the piece of meat, with its milkiness, it needs to be removed and discarded. And then if that piece was not discarded, but instead was stirred in, then there is another problem, which is that the piece underwater becomes chanan and its flavor of forbidden flavor of chanan now spreads amongst all the other pieces, which would need 60 against the whole piece of meat not just against the small droplet anymore. So that is the way that the Shach sees the progression. Now let's swing to the opposite extreme, which is the Taz. According to the Taz, the, the case here is one of where the piece of meat was partially submerged but the Taz interprets all of the halacha to be like Rashi. The Taz himself holds like Rashi, and the Taz sees Rashi in everybody. And what the Taz sees of Rashi is that when a milk droplet falls onto a piece of meat that's partially submerged, the entire piece becomes Hanan on contact. For as the milk droplet lands, so it spreads, so it spreads through the piece of meat. And that piece of meat has now in its entirety become forbidden. And since the meat is partially submerged in the liquid, its flavors are imparted into everything else inside this, this mixture. So the Taz holds this way as well. And the way that the Taz saw the Ramor, who held that there's only a need for 60 against the, the milk that, that comes out of the meat, that is because the Ramor held like the Ri, and that the Ramor was particular not to eat the entire piece of meat itself. And so to answer the three questions according to the Taz, the first question was, what does the Mahabra hold? The answer According to the Taz, the Machaba holds like Rashi, that a piece of meat that's partially submerged becomes Hanan, becomes itself the Isur, and therefore the Machaba insisted there needs to be 60 against the entire piece since the, the latter had became an Isur before it affected all the other contents of the pot. The second question was, who does the Ramah hold like? And the Taz answers, the Ramah holds like the Ri, that the milk that landed on the piece of meat filters through and boils out. However, the Ramah had his own khumra, he had his own particular uh, stance on the piece of meat itself and held that one shouldn't eat that piece. And that is why the Ramah insisted to discard the piece upon which the milk landed. And then as to the third question of how can the Ramah over here in Siv base just call for the meat to be removed, 
but in Siv Dalit calls for more drastic measures to measure 60 against the entire piece of meat. That question the Taz does not answer. So the Taz leaves that with the Tsarachir and he's not, uh, he's not certain of it. However, as we saw, the Shach did answer that question and answered it very thoroughly that when one removes the piece of meat, he gets rid of the milk together with that piece inside that piece of meat. But if that piece of meat is stirred in amongst the others, then that milk has a chance to uh, first render the entire piece of meat, Hanan, before that piece goes on to affect the other pieces of meat. So at this stage, what we're left with is the following. A Mishnah that seemed quite simple, a droplet of milk falls onto a piece of meat, taste the meat, if it tastes milky, get rid of the piece of meat, if it doesn't taste milky, you can eat that piece of meat. That, that, that was quite a simple and straightforward Mishnah. From there, we have progressed to a point of where we have quite a lot of moving parts and uh, quite, uh, quite a lot to consider. But that is because we cannot learn the Mishnah in a vacuum. The Mishnah has to be understood in light of all the other principles that we learn in Taruvas and in Bosa B'cholov. So before we introduce one more point, a brief summary on what we have seen. When a piece of meat is perched outside of the mixture, it's not touching the water, it's not submerged in any way, then according to everybody, when a droplet of milk falls onto that piece of meat, it is only the piece that is affected, that piece needs to be discarded and seemingly none of the other pieces inside the mixture are affected. When a piece of meat is partially submerged in a liquid and then a droplet of milk falls onto that piece, here is where we have a major controversy. According to the Shach, what happens is that according to the Ri, the milk droplet will filter through, will boil out and will become bottle bashishim should there be 60 pieces against the, the, the droplets of milk. According to Rashi, that droplet of milk is going to stay within the one piece of meat and it, that piece of meat does not become Hanan. Not enough meat has been affected by this milk. And therefore, if one removes the piece of meat, all the good, but if one does not remove this piece and stirs it in amongst all the other pieces of meat, then that piece now becomes Hanan. It becomes forbidden under the water, and now one needs 60 against the entire piece of meat. That is the way that the Shach sees the progression. What the Taz holds is that if the piece is partially submerged, according to Ri, the, the milk will filter out of that piece, become bottle bashishin, just like the Shach understood. However, where the Taz differs is that Rashi would see this entire piece of meat as becoming Hanan, and therefore, even if it isn't stirred in, even if the piece of meat remains partially submerged, its Hanan flavor is going to cook out and spread amongst all the other pieces of meat. And so one would need 60 against the entire piece. The halacha is therefore subject to a machloikas between the shach and the taz. The shach himself, paskins like the ri, the taz, paskins like rashi, and he sees rashi in everybody. So at this point, we could be safe to say that the shach is the lenient opinion who holds like the ri, that when the piece of meat is inside the mixture, then the milk will boil out. And then once you have 60 against that milk droplet, everything else is permitted. According to the Taz, however, that piece of meat always becomes Hanan. And therefore, you will always need 60 against that entire piece of meat as its own Issa flavor is now cooking out amongst the others. So safe to say at this point, the Shach is the lenient opinion and the Taz is the stringent one. However, there is one more missing link. And I hope we have time. I may just need to go over time if, if, if I may, if I may steal another five minutes or so. Um, but there is another missing link which will put the Shach as the stricter opinion 
and the Taz is the more lenient. And we will find another discussion amongst the Shach and the Taz based on their opinions in Simon Kuf Hay, the Shach Sif Kotten Yud Zion, and the Taz Sif Kotten Zion. So again, I'm not sure whether you've covered these sections yet, but I'll mention it. Um, it'll either be revision or it, it'll be something to to uh, to mull over until getting to that point. In Simon Kufhei, the subject under discussion is taste transfer, how one food imparts its flavor into another, and in particularly, how foods impart their flavor into one another without boiling in a liquid medium. The subject is tzli and melicha, that if two foods are roasting side by side without being in a liquid, how they would affect one another. And here we find a, that the, it, it depends really on whether the foods are what we call kochush or shomeh, if a food is considered lean or fatty. What this means entirely, we don't really know, and it's a subject on its own, but what we can say is that animal protein is definitely shomeh, it's fatty, and as to milk, whether milk is considered kochush or shomeh, whether milk is considered as fatty by virtue of being an animal product and by virtue of its milk fat, or whether milk behaves like a kochush, whether milk is lean. And the difference is that shomeh, foods which are fatty spread, and they continue to spread. And they can spread from one food to another to another in the same way as if they were boiling under water. Whereas kochush, foods which are lean, will only spread a certain amount, kadenatila, but no, no more. They're limited in how far they can actually uh, reproduce themselves and spread. Now, milk is one of those foods, foods, excuse me, which the Poiskim don't seem to be clear on, but the Shach over here in Sadiq base gives us enough of a principle that we can go with. Milk itself is fatty, and so it spreads. However, when milk falls onto a piece of meat, and that milk spreads into that piece of meat, then the milk becomes denatured. And maybe there's a scientific reason for it. If milk is more alkaline and meat is more acidic, that the two neutralize one another. But either way, when milk spreads throughout a piece of meat, it becomes denatured. And that milk cannot spread from that piece of meat into other pieces of meat unless all of those pieces of meat were boiling in a liquid. But if they were baking side by side, dry baking or dry roasting, then a piece of meat with milk inside is not going to have that milk spread into another piece of meat that's adjacent and touching it, because milk, once it gets into a piece of meat, becomes kochush, it becomes lean and does not spread further. However, the shach is of the opinion that once a piece of meat has had milk cooking through it, that that piece of meat now becomes chanan. It becomes a forbidden piece of a forbidden piece of meat, to the extent that its flavor, the meat's flavor, will spread. And because meat is fatty, its own fat that has become forbidden fat will spread into whatever the piece is touching, even if they are roasting side by side, even if they are, there's dry heat and they're not boiling in a liquid. So just to recap, the shach holds that although the milk is not going to spread out of one piece that's baking side by side with another piece, the piece of meat becomes chanan, it becomes an isur, and that piece of meat will give off its own fatty flavor of isur now into all the other pieces of meat, and that will continue to spread from one piece through to another, through to another, 
however many pieces are touching the piece that's touching the original piece of meat with the milk in it. So that is the opinion of the Shach in Kufhei. The Taz, however, holds that a piece of meat with milk in it, because the milk is not going to spread, the piece of meat, when it's giving off its flavors into all the other pieces that it's roasting with, that is just pure meat flavor that is moving, moving away from the piece of affected meat. And the meat flavor that moves away is not forbidden flavors because the shach and the taz have different definitions of chanan, a subject that maybe we can explore sometime in the future. So to bring, back, bring us back to Tipas Cholov and the last missing link, which I'd like to point out for today, is that we have looked at a situation of a piece of meat that is perched outside of the pot. It's not touching any of the other pieces. It's not in, it's not in the liquid. And that piece which is perched out is we've understood that that piece becomes affected by the milk droplet but that there's no progression further. If one can locate that piece of meat and remove it, the rest of the pot is fine. That is the way that we've been looking at it until now. However, when we bring in what we've discussed in Kufhei, this gives us an entirely different view. And it's not that the piece of meat that's outside the mixture has no effect, zero effect. There is something to consider. And here is where we find the flip side of where the shach will be more stringent and the taz will be more lenient. Because according to the shach, although the piece of meat is not submerged in a liquid, it is still hot. It's still on the stove. There is still heat. And that hot piece of meat is still touching other foods. And that the result will be that this piece of meat that has become chanan imparts its own chanan flavor, its own forbidden flavor, into all the other pieces. So this gives us an entirely different perspective because according to the shach, only if the piece of meat is partially submerged and it's in a liquid, can we consider the re in that the milk droplet filters out of that one piece and spreads evenly elsewhere. But once that piece of meat is outside, it's completely chutzlerotev, once it's outside the mixture, then that piece of meat becomes chanan on its own. And its own forbidden flavor will now be imparted through dry heat, through roasting, into all the other pieces of meat and into the rest of the pot, which means you need 60 against the entire piece of meat, not just the milk droplet coming out of it. So here is where we find the shach being more strict. Whereas the Taz would maintain that in such a situation where the piece of meat was outside the mixture, perched on top of other pieces, and there was no liquid medium between the two pieces, that the piece of meat with its milk does not have any effect on any of the other pieces because milk is not going to spread out its kochush. And because of that phenomenon, the piece of meat itself does not affect any of the other pieces. And so according to the Taz, in a situation of where one piece was perched outside the mixture, one would just need to remove that one piece of meat and the rest of the mixture is fine without having to have any 60 against not the droplet of milk and not the piece of meat itself. So it's important to consider the opinions of the Shach and the Taz in Kufhei when looking at this sugya in its totality. And therefore, the discussion of Tipas Cholov of Rashi, the Ri, the Shach, the Taz, would really only be applicable when the piece of meat was partially submerged in the liquid. It is at that point that the Shach is the lenient opinion requiring 60 only against the milk droplet, and the Taz is the stricter opinion requiring 60 against the entire piece of meat in accordance with Rashi. But when the piece of meat is outside the mixture perched on top of the other pieces, then it's an entirely different dynamic. It's now one of tzli, one of dry heat and dry taste that's being imparted. According to the shach, the piece of meat that's outside the mixture becomes chanan when the milk droplet falls onto it, 
and Hanan, forbidden flavor, is now roasting out of that one piece into all the others. Whereas according to the Taz, that one piece does not affect anything inside the pot. And so if one removes that one piece, the rest of the pot remains permitted. So this is the sugya of Tipas Cholov. This is the, these are the issues. And it basically boils down, pardon the pun, to a machloikis between the shach and the taz, how they view the dynamic of what happens to a piece of meat inside a pot, partially submerged, and how they would view what happens to a piece of meat outside the mixture that's not, uh, not in contact with the liquid at all. And how we would go about paskening the halacha would be based on uh, several other factors, but for now, suffice to outline the opinions of the Shach and the Taz and how their interpretations have really stretched this one Mishnah, short Mishnah, to its furthest extremes of what it could be dealing with based on all the other principles that we come across in, uh, in Issa Beheter, in Bosa Becholov. So to understand the sugya of Tipas Cholov, we do need to uh, dabble somewhat with those missing links and hopefully it, uh, it, it creates a bit of a, a gestalt, a bit of a picture of all the different pieces, uh, despite the complexity and uh, the technicalities of this particular sugya. So, yeah, I hope if we were sitting in that, uh, that chamber in Vilna over 100 years ago, that uh, we would have satisfactorily covered this sugya of uh, of Tipas Cholov.